And a very good morning to you if you've just joined us. It's time to uh, catch up with what's going on in uh, Latin America. Uh, our man in Mexico is John Bonfilio. Uh, John, a very good uh, evening to you and thanks ever so much for joining us. A very good evening to you too, Martin. Yeah, let, let's start with the uh, with the American uh, election because uh, uh, the Latino vote. We heard a lot of talk about that, uh, and I know sort of in Florida, where obviously there's a, a, an awful lot of uh, that one, well, especially in Miami. Um, you it, traditionally the Latino vote there goes to the Democrats, but this time not so much. Yeah, the Cuba. I mean, there's basically one point. If you look at the figures, there's 1.53 million Cubans in Miami. And it's also worth saying um, that there's also over 100,000 Venezuelans. And essentially, that voting bloc in a you know much broader Latino context is fairly adamantly Republican because of what, uh, you know, their personal histories and what's taken place or perceived to have taken place in their countries vis-a-vis socialism. So in no way, shape or form are they going to vote for the Democrats who are, you know, consistently tarred with a brush of bringing potential socialism into the country. And if you look at the fact that Florida essentially has been carried by a difference of 400,000 votes and the total of, you know, Miami-based Cubans and Venezuelans adds up to somewhere near, you know, 1.7 million, it's fairly clear that targeting that vote in that context and getting that vote out is... um um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's also a community that is very, very happy to go to the polls as well, um, is going to is going to make a massive difference in that particular state. More broadly in the U.S. and certainly other um, Hispanic and Latino communities do more traditionally tend towards the Democrats for obvious kind of migration, mi- migratory economic reasons um but certainly the you know the increase of the demographic across the country and in particular with you know we've all also heard a lot about the electoral college recently it's also not just the percentages of latinos across the country but it's also where they are so the flip side of that is if you look at nevada obviously home to las vegas um, and the entertainment industry you know one of the most important in in the u.s and there you've got a twenty thousand vote difference between this time towards Biden, uh, away from Trump. And essentially, just in Las Vegas alone, you've got 200,000 Mexican-Americans who live and work there, and 30% of the state is Latino and is growing all the time. So equally, you know, these transitions are are here to stay, and for sure the, the presence of differing Latino communities in what have been, you know, battleground swing states over the course of the last few days and maybe the next few days, for sure, absolutely crucial in a U.S. election cycle. Yeah, and I, I think probably w- w- one of the big changes is because you mentioned the uh, fact that the sort of socialism thing, which uh, clearly uh, you know traditionally a lot of Americans shrink away from. When you've got a Democrat party that does have people probably like Kamala Harris and, and some of those sort of more left-leaning Democrats. The Latinos, especially ones who've come from uh, Cuba or Venezuela, are, are more likely to go for the Republicans because that's, you know, socialism-free, if you like. Um, yeah, totally. 
Yeah, well, but yeah. you know, in the days of people like Clinton, when the Democrats just look, you know, don't look like a, a left-leaning socialist party at all, you know, they just look like a party they're going to look after the, you know, the health and the welfare of people. They're more likely to go Democrat. So I suppose this election slightly different from some of the previous elections. Yeah, totally. And but a lot of it also is U.S. policy towards, you know, these particular countries. And certainly Trump has been very you know, has worn the flag of browbeating the Venezuelan government in, in the recent past. And actually, in uh, the, the Clinton era seems like so long ago now. Um, but it, he was still also, I mean, there was an embargo in place at that particular point in time. And there was a, a really high-profile case at the time in which there was a, a young child that had been brought over on a boat by one of the parents from Cuba. And I don't know whether you remember 20 years ago, but there were SWAT teams that went in to pick up this kid and return him to to Cuba because he'd been removed without parental consent. Mm -hmm. And that also drove the Cubans in in Miami, you know, wild in terms of, you know, with anti-democratic um, sentiment. So as ever, it's the, you know, the hawks and the doves, Martin, and yes. which one you prefer. Indeed. Um, now, the uh, we've talked a fair bit about uh, the rainforest, the Amazon rainforest, uh, and uh, I know um, Bolsonaro has come under a fair amount of uh, criticism, uh, you know, for his policies, we, as far as that's concerned, and other environmental things. Um, however, he issued uh, sustainable forestry permits, which allowed companies to log areas of the Amazon responsibly, but now illegal loggers are... Are, um, are sort of moving in there and uh, not doing that. Yeah, and these permits get issued and then they get rescinded. Um, and I think the key thing here is who's in control on the ground. Since you, you sent me that story, I've sort of been thinking about a parallel way to kind of explain what's taking place in the Amazon. And I think the best scenario I can conceive of in terms of conveying the situation there is essentially it looks and feels like the Wild West. It's basically communities in the middle of nowhere on what is essentially a frontier yeah there is policy being made in a kind of central context if you like in terms of protections and stuff there's lawmen in, in town but they don't really have much power um there's basically standout criminals there's prospectors there's homesteaders there's indigenous communities and for sure there's a nominal law but there's no functioning enforcement and then you bring bolsonaro into this context in which in a central federal sense he basically you know opens opens the door on you know he's he's a he's a prospector and a wildcat logger's um favorite son and then that just gives free reign even more than before to a, a whole lawless interpretation of of the little um lawmaking that was already taking place on the ground i mean your average guy that works for the government that is uh, overseeing kind of conservation and best practice in these territories has an average of between um, 600 square miles to a thousand square miles that he or she has to has to observe by themselves i mean how do you patrol you know that um that range of of, of jungle in that context with, with no support whatsever it's just impossible Mm. I know it's Joe Biden, uh, whom we may hear from before the show's over. Uh, he's saying that uh, Brazil should suffer, quote, significant economic consequences if destruction of the Amazon continued. So um, I'm assuming that Bolsonaro and his supporters will be uh, 
we'll be hoping Trump gets, well, he's not going to get back in, but I hope <laughs> Trump's uh, legal challenges work. I mean, it's going to be a different world for the, uh, as far as uh, Brazil's concerned if, uh, if Biden gets in by the sound of things. It is, for sure. But actually, as with, you know, Trump before this whole thing happened in Bolsonaro, actually, these kinds of attacks actually strengthen him. Uh, so somebody abroad telling him, you know, nominally telling the Brazilian president what he should be doing vis-a-vis -vis his, his own country actually annoys all Brazilians, no matter, you know, what side of the political fence they're, they're on. There are ways of doing this which don't involve um, shouting down other countries. And Latin Americans are, you know, up to their chests or necks with... Uh, North Americans telling them what it is that they right. need to do in any in any context. Yeah, just finally, we'll we'll, um, we'll leave our Latin American sporting hero until next week, if that's okay, uh, John. Sure. Um, because I want to hear about this drugs bust. Um, one point two tons of cocaine. Yes. So there's this. This is one of those peculiar stories that the more you you dig into it, the, the weirder and weirder it becomes. Uh, I've been thinking recently we should do like a a top 10 Latin American stories of the year towards the end of the year. <laughs> and this, this one may well feature. So this is a vessel, a uh, German-owned, Russian-manned cargo ship uh, registered, flagged in uh, Antigua and Barbuda. We've spoken about, you know, the peculiarities of flagging vessels in different mm. countries recently on your show, called the Unispirit. And essentially it was leaving or due to leave a port in Brazil carrying corn to Spain when it was searched by Brazilian officials and 1.5 tonnes of cocaine was was found in the uh, in the hold. Apparently, they just then let the ship go. The Brazilian police said it left under suspicious circumstances, but nobody really seems to, to know anything. My suspicion is that the Brazilian police didn't want to get involved in any of this, so they told the, the ship to go merrily on its way. And then, at the other side of the Atlantic, the Spanish authorities get involved and tow it into port in Gran Canaria, where they, where they do an exhaustive search for five days and unearth another 1.2 tonnes of cocaine. And what's wow. really peculiar about this now is... Looking into where this ship is now, you'd expect it to be, you know, impounded in port in Gran Canaria and stuff as various other things happen and people are arrested and so on. No, it's now happily in port in, in uh, Cadiz in Spain. It's end port. The cocaine's been taken off and nobody's been arrested. Nobody's uh, been indicted with any of this. And the ship is, you know, um, happy to, to continue on. So does this, does this smell of roses, this, uh, this story? Absolutely not. The other mm. thing to add to this is... I've been doing some maths, which I know is always a worry, but I've been trying to look at the context of this seizure in an annual, you know, how much is seized um, annually in, in Europe and, and what kind of scale of the market that is. So this was 1.2 tons that was seized off the coast of Gran Canaria. And on average, in any given year, about 60 tons is seized uh, in seized in Europe. That's got a street value of between about 40 million to 120 million quid, depending on where it's sold and when it ends up, etc. So if you do the maths on that, essentially that's about a range of two, two and a half billion to seven billion pounds that is wow. lost to cartels just on cocaine alone coming into Europe. And that is money that they are happy to lose. So that's, you know, this is not something which, as we well know, affects their operations in any way, shape or form. This is going to be a minuscule percentage of the total amount that's going into Europe. So multiply that by what? 20, 30 in terms of the actual money yeah. that, um, that's, that's reaching those, those spaces. And, and what does that buy? I mean, we think in a traditional kind of cartel context, it buys guns, it buys cars, it buys houses in a, uh, in a Colombian context, it buys you hippos as well. But really, yes. what it fundamentally, it, it buys you is control. And it, it buys you control of all levels of politics and all levels of policing 
absolutely everywhere. You know, whether we like it or not, whether we like to admit it or not, these things are, are predestined and preordained to to arrive at their destination port. And if there's a seizure of 1.2 tons, it's something which the cartels are more than happy to lose. Wow. If there's a war against drugs, it looks like drugs is winning quite uh, quite well, yeah. actually, quite substantially. Uh, and this was Sorry. in sacks of, sacks of corn. So were these like uh, corn on the cob? Because um, <laughs> uh, I do love corn on the cob. I, I think it's a great, uh, a great food. And it, it's not so much a food, it's more of a sort of vehicle for carrying butter. It's one way of eating hot butter. Uh, and, um, you know, I enjoy corn on the cob for that reason. Probably more than yeah. more than cocaine, really. But, For sure, and yeah. in the COVID context, there's no there's no plate needed. You know, you just no. get your sticks, you put it in, and there's yeah. no cross con contamination of the product. Fantastic, fantastic, John. Thanks ever so much. Uh, we'll talk again uh, next week if that's okay. Take care. Good man. Uh, John Bonfilio there joining us from uh, Mexico. Uh,